imperative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are thankful for the manifest presence of who you are, made known throughout the universe. Lord, as we get dive in today to take a look at how we identify you and your authority, Lord, that, that you would speak to us, that we would, our minds would be opened, our ears would be opened, our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be opened, Lord, to receive what you have in your mighty name. Amen. You can be seated. So today we're going to be talking about Revelation. Now, not the book of Revelation. We will get there in a few weeks in our prophecy series, but right now we're going to be talking about Revelation. What does that mean? That is that we believe the scriptures are God's disclosure of himself through creation, history, and the conscience of man, right? And we believe that the word of God is God's word, not just a um, written uh man's written interactions with God. And this is a, it seems like, man, this is a fine detail, but this is an important detail. And I, I told you guys, I'm going to do a little bit of why behind the what when we're doing, when we're kind of jumping into these different topics. Why are we talking about the authority of scripture? We are talking about the authority of scripture because there is a movement, I believe, uh, really that's primarily happening in Western nations that is taking the word and saying, look, this is not really God's word. What it is, is God's interacted with some people and then they wrote down their interactions and it's filled with their biases and with their own hate and their own bigotry. And so we really just have to take the Bible at arm's length. And I want to argue that that, that really is, is, is against what is fundamental about being a follower of Christ. In fact, I would argue it to the point that even Christ believed in the Word of God. He was the Word of God. So taking time to understand this will, I want to tell you, build your faith. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if you're in here today and you think that you've already made a decision that you don't believe the Bible is authoritative, you don't believe in the Word of God, I just would invite you to just listen today and to, and to think. My, my goal as a pastor is never to convince somebody of something. Uh, I think that's a waste of time. My goal as a pastor is to hopefully open up the conversation between you and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the work, not me. It's not my job to convince you. I want you to be able to come to the place where you are interacting with the Holy Spirit and you come to the realization of who God is. Now, I got to tell you that when we talk about when we talk about the Bible, I I can get pretty feisty. Um, I get pretty upset because I feel like the people that don't believe in the Bible tend to be bullies and I I don't do well with bullies. Um, I I my wife has has helped me come to this realization the older that we've gotten that as a ch as a child right uh, I was bullied extensively and uh, now that I'm older whenever I see a bully 
like a piece of me melts inside, right? And uh, I need the Holy Spirit to hold me back because even as a grown man, I can lose it and be ready to go uh, to fist with somebody. But hey, by the grace of God, I haven't done that in a really long time, all right? I haven't fought anybody since high school, right? Okay, uh, uh, that you know of. So answer this question right here, right now. Do you believe that this is God's word, the Bible? Do you believe that? Now, if you, if you answer yes, then today I hope to give you some encouragement that might help you in explaining to others why you believe that. If the answer is no, I want to challenge you. So let's look here at John chapter 20, verse 3. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can we use scripture to authenticate the integrity of scripture? That, I would argue, is really difficult to do. If you believe in scripture, then yes, you can look at scripture and go, see, scripture says that scripture is authoritative. If you don't believe in the Bible and a pastor gets up and says, you should believe in the Bible because the Bible says it's real, you probably are sitting there thinking, like, that's not a very strong argument. And a lot of people take on this mindset. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? You ever heard somebody that's like, nope, that's not what God said, right? Uh, again, this type of argument ends up falling apart when somebody doesn't even acknowledge maybe that there is a God. Now, we live in a society today that is honestly in some ways very similar to the time of Christ, but there are a few things that are different. One of those is that we in our society believe that truth changes with time and circumstance. And, and, and this is, this is, this is a, a mind-blowing concept. When I was in Bible college, uh, we had an entire, uh, like, uh, sermon series done by the professors on this topic right here they told us they said we are at this exponential uh on-ramp to postmodern mindset and people will only believe in the truth that they believe in and they will believe that it is subjective in fact what's staggering is that 85 percent of those under 30 believe this 85 percent believe that my truth is my truth Right? And so truth then is subjective. And that your truth is subjective, but my truth is law. Right? This is why we see the type of behavior that we see in society around social justice reform and those types of topics, right? Is because I have come to the conclusion that this is that this is true. I don't really need facts because my emotions have helped me come to this place. I feel like it's this way. And surely if there's a God, he would feel the same way, right? Because I am God, and so because I believe this, then you have to believe it too. And so truth is subjective for me, but truth can't be subjective for you. You need to open your eyes. You need to believe. You need to believe exactly what I am saying to you. I want to use a, a really easy illustration for this. The earth was once flat, right? It's not a true statement, right? But there were loads of people that at one time believed that the earth was flat. They taught that the earth was flat. They illustrated a flat earth. They made their maps based on a flat earth. There are people today that still believe that the earth is flat. All right? If you're one of them, we can have a conversation later. All right? Why do we no longer believe that the earth is flat? First of all, experience. 
right? Some people have gone beyond what was the end. There was a group of people that got into their, their, their boats and they began to sail and they said, well, this didn't end where we thought it ended, right? Okay, and then the second is evidence, right? So the curvature of the earth and the movement of the stars began to cry, people began to go, hold on, like there's some type of, the math isn't aligning with this, right? Like we're not seeing a flat earth. So we have the capacity to get it wrong as society. Right? I, I, I hope that we can come to that agreement, that, that society as a whole can get it wrong, and historically, society gets it wrong. Historically, we get it wrong. We get it wrong, I think, more often in big ways than we get it right. So how do we establish a reason to believe God's word? Well, there are two types of revelation, okay? Two types of revelation. The first one I'm calling general revelation, and this comes through what has been made, what has been created, okay? The second one is divine revelation, and this comes directly from the creator, directly from the creator. So let's talk about general revelation, right? This is going to help us establish a creator, okay? So our argument right now, and, and I just I want to tell you right now, I am not doing as much scripture as I normally do because I'm arguing for the integrity of scripture. So in a big way, I feel like I've got to remove myself from the scripture before we can get into the scripture. Okay. So uh, anybody familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, really, really great theologian and author in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, it's this interaction between this hierarchy of demons and one of them says, above all, do not attempt to use science as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see, right? And I don't know where along the way, like this is right, like science, throwing science at a Christian should not be the thing that says, oh, you can't be a Christian and believe in science, right? Okay, because the people that, that kind of come at it with that, that's, this is what gets me going, right? It's like, well, there's science, right? Well, let me tell you, as a Christian, I believe in science. Uh, and the argument that kind of comes up is that I believe in science, well, it didn't used to be fighting words, right? Well, I don't know who it's fighting words for, right? Because I, I'm not a science denier. Uh, so this is, in my opinion, when, when this is the statement that's being made, this is somebody telling me that they didn't read the book without telling me they didn't read the book, right? They're coming at Christians. They're saying, oh, man, you've you, you got to believe in science. I don't believe in God. And for me, that just goes, well, you, you obviously don't know what you're talking about because if you knew what you were talking about, then you would not see Christians as science deniers. Are there people who call themselves Christians that deny science? I'm sure that they are out there, right? There are a lot of mysterious people groups that are constantly named, right? Like they are roaming bands of them. I don't see them. I look out my window constantly. I haven't found any of them yet. I'm sure that they exist. Followers of Christ believe science. And I, there's a key little word here. I just wanted to tell you, I left out. And it's that word in, right? Science is not a God, right? Science is, to, for, for me, it is the evidence of the things that are around us, right? It is understanding the, the creation that God made. And so if God is real, then creation, right? And 
Using science should point us to God. I believe that it does. One of the problems that we have, and, and this is just like there are problems within the church, there are problems in the scientific community. When I was a kid, we had this thing called the scientific method. All right? I know it's completely foreign. We don't use this anymore. But the idea was that you ask the question, you do some background research, you construct hypotheses, hypotheses, you test with an experiment, you analyze results and draw a conclusion, and, 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 and then if you didn't get the results you expected, right, you reported that you didn't get the results that you expected, and you went back to the drawing board and you worked on it, right? What we find so many times, and I'm going to tell you, I just want to pause because there are some really high-level integrity scientists. There are some in our lives, in our community, and, and I am thankful for that, right? There are scientists, though, that do not, they skip this part, right? Analyzing, looking at it, and then reporting it. It's just always, whatever the hypothesis is, is correct, right? This is why it's really important when you are reading anything that is like cutting-edge science. Like, is it peer-reviewed? right? Has it gone through a process? Has it been tested by others? And are we able to go, yeah, okay, this is correct. I'll give you a good for instance, right? This last week, they found a part of, a, or a piece in an archaeological dig of a manuscript that they are dating back to the time of the Exodus, okay? And it is a part of a manuscript that is a part of portion of the Old Testament. Why does that matter? Because historically, they have argued that the, that the Hebrew people, if, if the Exodus story were true, we're an illiterate group of people, and so therefore the Exodus story couldn't be true. Now, if they are able to peer review and pull this little fragment to that time period right now, that's what they're saying. If that ends up being true, then it throws that argument and knocks that out of the park, right? They were not an illiterate people. They had a God that they were serving. So, the more we learn about the world around us, the more we learn that it points to an intelligent designer, okay? The, the scriptures actually make this case. So it is okay to pause and look at creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It is okay to look outside of scripture for the authority of the creator, for the revelation of the creator. If you want to go deeper than where I go today, I recommend reading Intelligent, Understanding Intelligent Design by William Dembski and Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell has a fantastic YouTube channel where he does a ton of uh, compassionate but really in-depth research into topics that are very controversial today, and the man loves the Lord. He loves Jesus. I have found his, his study of the Bible to be on point and sound definitely would recommend it. Now, uh, I'm going to pull just two points from the book that uh, I think kind of will help us uh, move forward, but he actually, the book has a ton of really good information in it. Let's talk about the idea of morality, okay? Morality. If there is a moral standard, then there must be a moral lawgiver. Think about that. If there is a moral standard, then there must be somebody that gave that moral law to us, right? And at the end of the day, nothing is right or wrong because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's right or wrong. So the scripture does not tell us that 
well, because it's in Scripture, now all of a sudden it falls into moral law. All that the Scripture is doing is telling us what is already morally right and wrong. And so the Scripture is a record, God speaking and going, this is already true and this is already false and I'm making it known to you in case you were wondering. And so the, the question then comes, right, for a lot of people who will look at Scripture, view Scripture as not being authoritative, they kind of jump into some of the really difficult conversations like slavery, genocide, homosexuality, women's rights inside of Scripture. And, and I have to make the argument here that, yes, these, these are things that need to be discussed, right? Especially because we bring our emotions and our worldview to the table, okay? We also oftentimes don't do the work of researching the context of what was put in the Word. Instead, we just kind of take a non-believer's perspective, right, who's writing a hit piece or doing a hit piece on Scripture. But I just want to point this out, that the standard of right and wrong has to come from a source, right? And so from what standpoint are we able to question the Bible? The fact that you're looking at topics within Scripture and going, well, what about this and what about that, means that there is some type of moral understanding already framework inside of you. Where does that moral framework come from? Does that moral framework, because you're just a really good person and you've sat down and done a lot of you know, thinking and writing, and so now you have a good moral idea for the world. No, there's a reason that we see this moral debate taking place over and over through history, and so many times with the consistent uh, uh, divides within culture, because it's written inside of us. Something is declaring a moral law. And is morality a human invention? I would have to argue that it is not a human invention, that morality is something that transcends humans. It goes beyond us. And so if it goes beyond us, if there is some ultimate right or wrong that we are innately aware of, right, okay, then if we are innately aware of it, if we are aware of that, where does it come from becomes the question, right? And somebody says, well, I don't, I don't believe in that. Like a good illustration would be like, you don't believe in that, so I'm going to take your wallet and spend all your money. And you're going to say, not happening, right? Why? Because it's yours. And why is it not okay for me to just immobilize you, take it, and spend it? Because that's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's yours, right? And we can go in circles all day long trying to avoid the question, what makes it wrong? Well, there is some moral understanding inside of us that it's just not okay, right? Uh, uh, and so, so where that comes from, the argument is made that that comes from a creator that has put that on us. Let's talk about physics for a moment, right? So imagine the perfect morning. You wake up and uh, maybe you're like me, so this is going to be my perfect morning. It might not be your perfect morning. My perfect morning, I wake up and the smell of coffee is filling the air with a hint of biscuits and gravy surfing, riding that wave right behind it, okay? And so I get up and there's nobody around and I put on my house slippers and my robe and I, I don't have either of those, but I make my way upstairs and then at the table, the feast is prepared, right? I've got the biscuits and gravy and the bacon and the eggs and an and, and endless, cup of coffee, right? It's like the, uh, the woman with the oil and every time she pours it out and it's like my, my cup runneth over, right? It's my perfect morning. So I wake up and it's the perfect morning. 
right? But nobody's in sight, okay? We would all make the argument that someone knew we were coming. We would make that innately. Why? One, because of the evidence, but two, intuition, right? The evidence is all the things that Jim likes are sitting there, right? So somebody knew Jim was coming. And intuition, we know those things don't just spontaneously appear, right? I mean, that would be great if they did, right? You just spontaneously, you're just walking, all of a sudden, boom, biscuits and gravy. It's like, who knew right now? That's, that's not how it works, right? Okay? So, so evidence and intuition. A man named Freeman Dyson, and I'm going to be quoting a number of people who intentionally who are not Christians, okay, that I'm aware of. They've been outspoken as agnostic, not Christians. Maybe they're saved now. Not Christians. This is intentional. So he is a theoretical physicist and mathematician known for his works in quantum field theory, astrophysics, random matrices, mathematical formulation of quantum mechanics, condensed matter physics, nuclear physics, and engineering. Bottom line, smarter than me. Okay, all right. Jedediah might know what some of these things are right here. Uh, I, I'm going to have to get a dictionary to dive in. But listen to what, the, what, what he has to say. He says, as we look out into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. Right? This is what is known as the teleological argument. All right, the teleological argument is this. It is the argument of the ex for the existence of God, or more generally, that complex functionality in the natural world which looks designed is evidence of an intelligent creator. So this idea that the reason that it looks designed and the reason that we function, and it's almost like, oh, this place was made for us, is because it was made for us. Paul Davies, another smart person, an English physicist, writer and broadcaster, a professor at Arizona State University, as well as the director of Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts and Science, said that the mechanism of the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is actually much more profound than the biblical version because it does not merely involve order emerging out of chaos. He says it's not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization or structure upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. And I have to tell you, I agree. Science does more to confirm intelligent design than the poetry of Genesis. The poetry of Genesis is beautiful. It helps give us a, a foundation of where to start. Science, as God has made it for us, continues to scream that there is a creator. Now, why do they say this? Okay, I don't have time to go through all of it. Again, you can go to the book. There are a number of resources out there. Um, we're going to use two. First, one we're going to use is the expansion rate of the universe. So, if the expansion of the universe were any stronger, it would collapse in on itself, and if it were any weaker, we couldn't have the formation of planets and stars. So the, the concept of uh, the expansion of the universe is that as they look out into space, they see that the universe is continuing to expand, right? Uh, and so as the universe continues to expand, there's a rate by which it is expanding. And, and they use these telescopes, and they're able to see different colors. And it's the color red. And I, again, I'm, this is me 
giving back to you what I've read, okay? And the reason that that matters is just like we have sound waves that change the further away they are, right? So as I'm speaking, the, the greater the distance, they, the sound waves get lower and lower and lower. And so we're able to just innately hear like, okay, that's coming from a distance or that's coming from right in front of us. So the colors on these, these spectrums that they use show what is happening. And this color red shows them that the universe is continuing to expand, right? Now, if you think in terms of like a, a sound wave, right? So if you speak, that sound continues to carry, right? So if God, the creator, did, according to poetry, speak things into existence, his voice continues to carry itself. And so creation continues to take place and continues to expand. So he says here uh, that if the balance between gravity and the expansion rate were altered by one part in one million, billion, 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 there would be no galaxy, stars, planets, or life. Okay? Right? So what is that? That's 40 zeros. Right? And you're going, well, 40 zeros is not that much. Pastor Jim, you're over 40. Right? You've hit a few zeros. Okay, think about it like this. That's all the mass in the universe compared to one grain of sand. That if the expansion rate in comparison to gravity were to shift by just one grain of sand, right, it could not sustain life. All right? So one grain of sand, more or less, and the universe would not be able to do what it does. Let's add gravity into the mix, right? So gravity. If we add gravity to cosmic expansion, you get one in a hundred million trillion, 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 right? Like that number makes the national debt not look too bad, right? Okay, right? And then the question comes, you know, is do I own my debt or does my debt own me, right? And if I think about that in my own terms, how do I expand that beyond to my local government? But let's get back to this. This is the equivalent of one atom out of all the atoms in the universe, Expanse, gravity, we bring just those two together out of thousands of variables. And there's just one variation within that of one atom, and it all falls apart. Roger Penrose, an Oxford physicist who wrote The Emperor's New Clothes, said this, if we jointly considered all the laws of nature that must be fine-tuned, we would be unable to write down such an enormous number because the necessary digits would be greater than the number of elementary particles in the universe. Right? That's a lot. And so if creation is so fine-tuned and the number is too vast to be chance, then what alternatives do we have? At what point do we just continue to go, nope, I believe in chance. And then the science keeps coming in going, man, it, chance is a really difficult thing to come to. Nope, I believe in chance. No, I'm telling you, we're, it's getting more. Okay, there are not enough elemental particles in the universe to be able to break down a number that could even help us get to that level of chance. So this is general revelation found in creation. It's why other religions can have some truth to them, right? Because there is a creator. And so apart from divine revelation, 
people look to the general revelation and they form their own religions and so different religions there may have some types of truths inside of them you go well that kind of makes sense or yeah I, I can see how that is right but let's talk about divine revelation for a moment if there is a creator have they spoken now my argument is going to be that they have spoken and that they that it is God and he spoke through the Bible. Now academics have a standard they use to verify the authenticity and accuracy of ancient texts. We're going to take a look at the New Testament for a moment. It all begins with examining manuscripts, okay? What is a manuscript? A manuscript is a manual, manually written copy of the text. Remember that the printing press didn't come into existence until the 1500s. So when we're talking about ancient texts, we're talking about texts that scribes got together, one person read the existing copy, and then they sat down and wrote out the additional copies. Uh, in, in regards to the New Testament, we're talking about the writings are on papyrus. It comes from reeds grown in the shallow waters of the Nile. Okay? It has its own issues with aging. It was, it was very durable for the time, but uh, over time, without proper preservation, it deteriorates. Okay? So here are some of the questions that academics have when they are determining the legitimacy of a ancient work. How close to the original work do we have a copy, right? Within how many years? Now, fortunately, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a, a library of documents that were discovered uh, in the last 50 years, okay? Inside of those caves, we have found two entire copies of the New Testament that are dated to be within 50 years of Christ. Two entire New Testaments within 50 years of Christ. In Cave 7, because they've numbered them, we find portions of Mark and Matthew dating to between 30 and 40 years of Christ. So we have portions of the New Testament that we're able to compare to the entire New Testaments, and these come to within 30 or 40 years of Christ, and the entire New Testaments come within 50 years of Christ, okay? Now, how are we able to determine the age? Well, the type of paper, the way the writings were divided up, the style of script, those are basic ways they do it before they start doing carbon testing and whatnot. So, so the consensus is that we have these, they are within 50 years. Now, let's look at some other ancient works and that, that academically we accept as being correct, right? Authentic, okay? Uh, Plinius and Segundus, 750 years. That's the span we have between when it was written and the oldest copies that we can find. Caesar and the Gallic Wars, it's a thousand years. Aristotle's writings from 343 BC, 1400 year span, okay? 1400 years, but we accept them and academically they are taught right they are taught to students the second question that we can come to is that we come to is how many copies do you have right so you find one little bitty piece you find two uh, entire manuscripts how many copies do you have so this determines a few things this helps to determine consistency and whether the copies are trustworthy right so having a bunch of copies doesn't matter if they're just all over the place right there has to be some type of consistency within them so Let's look at a few writings that we accept to be authentic and how many manuscripts we have for them. 
Uh, Plinius Secundus. We have seven manuscripts. That was enough for us to say we feel confident we have a legitimate copy of the source. Caesar and the Gallic Wars, 10. Plato, 7. Aristotle, 49 copies. Now, Homer's Iliad, we actually have 643 copies of that, right? So that is by far the largest number of copies we have of an ancient text next to the New Testament of which we have 24,633, right? It's, it's not even a close second. 24,633. Third question that they ask is how consistent are the copies? Okay, let's just look at Homer's Iliad because we have that as being the second most. Out of 15,000 lines, there are 750 lines in dispute because of discrepancies, right? So out of the 600 plus copies of it, they're sitting here, they're looking at it, 15,000 lines. Right, okay, 750 of them, there's discrepancies in it, so we are in dispute on those 750 lines, okay? The New Testament, out of 20,000 lines, there are 40 lines in dispute because of discrepancies. 40 lines, and not one of them deals with doctrine. Not one of the 40 lines in the New Testament that are arguably not authentic, have anything to do with doctrine, and doctrine being what we hold to be true about who God is. So how do you get a text that makes its, its way all the way to here based on man? Think about what man does. We don't do much very well, especially when we get groups of us together, right? When we get groups of us together, somehow we, we destroy, right? We go into debt. We create poverty. We just don't do things super well on our own. And yet somehow we have the word of God preserved unlike any other writing that the world has ever seen. My argument would be that if general revelation can point us to the fact that there is a creator and things are created, that divine revelation should be able to point us to say, well, what has that creator said? And if that creator exists, then that creator can preserve his word. Forty lines, forty lines, that is about half a page of the New Testament. And so using the same academic standard that gives students the Iliad to read, we can accept that the New Testament we have is the one written by the apostles and accepted by the early church. Now, let us ask the question, is its content trustworthy? Well, what makes this text unique compared to the other texts that we were mentioning is that it was written by eyewitnesses or from firsthand accounts entirely, okay? All right, eyewitnesses, firsthand accounts. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, we talked about, we read this at the beginning. In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, what does it say? Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you you have been taught. So what is he saying here? He's saying that I, I was an eyewitness. I have been connecting with eyewitnesses, and I thought it was important for me not to give you my perspective, my opinions, my thoughts, but instead to create an account that is trustworthy because that's what's going to do 
more good for you than for me to give you my commentary on the circumstances that have taken place. I mean, I want you to think about this. Ten of the twelve apostles died martyr death, martyr's deaths, meaning that they died for the gospel. Not that they just, you know, it was a freak, you know, chariot accident, you know what I'm saying, head-on collision. No, they died for the gospel. And the argument comes back, well, you know, a lot of people have died for a lie. A lot of people have died for a lie. And I, I would say that you're, you are correct. There have been a lot of people who have died for a lie. But they always thought it was the truth. Right? And you say, well, they just thought that this lie was the truth. Well, if the r resurrection was a lie, then they would have known it was a lie. Because the lie that they were bought into was that Jesus was resurrected. That they had first-hand experience with his risen body, right? So they would have known that the thing that they were living for was a lie if it was a lie. Ten out of twelve die a martyr's death. And you might make the argument that a lot of people have died for a great cause. Yes, but these guys, this guy's cause was died on a cross, see, they were looking for a ruler and went home in shame, discouraged and hiding themselves. What drew them out? I mean, remember that even at that last meal, right, the scripture tells us that they were sitting there having this conversation about who was going to rule at his right hand. Jesus was getting ready to put an army together. They were going to go to war. They were going to stomp down the enemy. It's time. Let me hear your war cry. Jesus keeps telling them, that's not how it's going to happen. They don't receive it. Then Jesus is dying on a cross. And what do they do? They run and hide. Something draws them out of that place of shame and takes them into the most dangerous parts of the known world. I mean, the New Testament is written in 13 countries, over three continents, in three languages, and yet tells one story. One continuous story. So if creation declares a creator... Right? If the Creator spoke to His people, then what does He say about His Word? What does He say about His Word? Acts chapter 10, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. But God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why does he say as to one untimely born? It's because he would have loved to have been born in a time and place so that he could have walked the ministry of Jesus. But there was a different plan for Paul's life. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me tell you, if you are looking at the church to be the divine revelation of God, you are misunderstanding the divine revelation of God. We're the hands and the feet. We are not the divine revelation of God. The divine revelation of God is his word. And this is why it drives me crazy when people attack the faith and then try to throw out little ideas from Scripture knowing full well that they don't know what they're talking about. Knowing full well that they haven't taken the time to go through the book to even themselves disprove it. And so that's, that's my argument to you, is that if you're sitting here going, okay, well, if, there, if, if the science points to the fact that random chance is just not a good theory, that there's some type of design, well, then would that designer, would that creator want to speak? Maybe I should take the time to go through and read what it is that others are saying he has said, to do the work to try to understand. And this is fundamental to being a Christian, and why I want to address it is that when people say that they do not accept the Word of God to be authoritative, to be without error, to be the Word of God, my argument is that they have just put a major crack in the foundation, and they have opened the door for sin and for deception, and their lives will struggle because of it. Now, that divine revelation that comes through the word is for all of us, but there is divine revelation that God will bring directly to each and every one of his children. And I have walked that life, I have experienced that, but my experiences are not your experiences. I have personally seen blind eyes opened. My son, both retinas, detached, filled with blood. Doctor looks us in the eye, says there is no surgery. Your son will never see. It is not possible. He would not qualify for a transplant. He would not qualify for it. Is not possible for him to see. And then the doctor coming in a few days later, and nurses saying, "Hey, have you talked to the doctor? Because he did an eye exam and started screaming and ran out of here like a madman. Why? Because the retinas were reattached and the sight was restored." I have seen cancer disappear. I have seen the impossible. And let me tell you something else. Let me tell you what else makes my faith strong is that I have seen the sick die and I have seen the wounded suffer. And I can't tell you why it is that God moves in one scenario and not in another outside of the fact that God is perfect in what he knows. And the hardest prayer that my wife and I ever prayed was, was the prayer that we prayed when our son was in the hospital. And that was, God, you tell us we can ask for healing. You tell us that we can believe for miracles, right? You tell us that. So we're here doing that, but we trust that you're God. And if your kingdom is better served for us to walk through, they're not being a healing. We will walk through it. Why? Because we believe in the divine voice of the Creator, and we believe He has our best interest at heart. And I believe, and I want you to believe, 
But that is something that, that is a decision you have to make. That is, you have to be willing to pause your busy schedule and do the research and come to the place, if it's analytically, if it's emotionally, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit engages you with, you've got to be willing to do the work to come to the place where you can accept that Jesus is risen. And let me tell you, he is soon returning. Let's stand to our feet. If you have not made the decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, listen, it is not a magic spell that gets cast over you. The scripture says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, he's faithful to save us, right? It's a heart change that's taking place. And then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So when we're speaking... In that moment, what's happening is, is that our heart has changed and we begin to accept the reality. I can't do this on my own. Creation around me is screaming, right? It's crying out to a creator. And God, I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to hear your voice. And so that heart change begins to happen. And then we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we are safe. We become his, under his protection, under his guard, covered by his sacrifice. And so if you do not know Jesus, I want to invite you to ask that tough question. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to continue to walk this thing out without answers, or am I going to find the answers? Now, if you're in here today and you are a believer, right, I, I'm, I, we're going through this series and we're talking about things you probably don't think about in and out of every day. But I am telling you, the church is radically changing right now, and much of what's happening is detrimental to the kingdom of heaven, right? And it is happening, and it's happening from pulpits, from these platforms, from pastors that are teaching things that are not biblical. And if you don't know the word of God, and if you don't know why you believe what you believe, there will be things that are said to you that you will say, oh, that feels good. That makes sense. I like that. And fundamentally, we have to remember that what I feel, right, does not supersede who God is. I am not God. And so I want to encourage you to be diving in and going deeper in your walk with the Lord and with studying Scripture and knowing what's happening in the world around you than you ever have before because there are people in your life that the enemy is trying to lead them astray. And you may be a voice of reason, a light in the dark, if you are prepared. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. I thank you for for your, your revelation that we find through creation, and I thank you for the divine revelation that comes through your word. Lord, we accept your word to be truth. We accept it to be what's best for us. Thank you that you loved us so much, that you formed us, that you came into this world with us, that you have not abandoned us, and that you're coming for us, Lord. Help us to be children that walk worthy of that. Help us to be disciples that lead others to that. And in all that we do, may we bring glory and honor to your name. We love you and praise you. Amen. If you want prayer, prayer ministry teams are in the back. We want to pray with you. If you're sick in body, if you want to know more about Jesus, come ask questions. We're available. We love you guys. Uh, we'll see you next Sunday. As always, go change your world.